0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. We're going to be reading from Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 13. So yeah, do definitely, definitely get your Bibles out if you have them handy, um, so that you can follow along with me. Keep on loving one another. As brothers and sisters, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is a saying yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing this disgrace he bore. So Amen.
1: That's- Thanks, Amanda. That class. Uh, Hey, guys. uh, I'm Maffey. I'm on the staff team here at Christ City Church. It's good to see everybody today. Um, So if you're comfortable, that's good. And if you're not comfortable, you might want to get comfortable. Um, Growing up, I I don't know if you've ever found a letter on your table growing up. Um, I I spent literally 28 years living with my mother. Most of it was incredible. But I found so many letters on my table growing up. Uh, some of them, it was uh, just a simple thing, such as, um, um, Matthew, I, um, I'm going down to the shops. I, I, I love you a lot. Please do the hoovering. Uh, other other ones were like, um, we, need, we need a chat later on, or can you do this? And then some other ones, it was in the morning time where she would left for work early, and then I would have got up slightly later, and there would have been A, B, C, D, and E. And that's only for me. And then my father's letter would have been here, with A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Anyway. I wonder if you've ever had a letter like that before with a list of things on it. I want to show you quickly two little letters in the next two slides. So let's see the first one here. Husband, welcome home. I'm hiding in the house with a Nerf gun. Here is the other one. The loser cooks dinner tonight. May the odds ever be in your favour. That's hilarious. I can tell you this, I've never received one of them letters before. But uh, you, never, you never know what'll happen. Let's see the next one. Next one's great. Nasty looking spider in the closet this morning. Couldn't get it. Shake out all your clothes before you put them on. That's incredible. I reckon my marriage would break down uh, should I get a letter like that. So Steve, I might need some pastoral support from you. Guys, here's a couple of fun letters. And in one sense, there's some similarities with today's message. Uh, this, is a, this is a letter that you've, you've written with a few really important PS's on it. And um, so the, the book of Hebrews is, is really just one long letter. And we've went through chapters one to 12 uh, in this series already. And now we're at chapter 13. So we're going to explore the first half of chapter 13 today, which is full of these PS moments. And these are some things that are super important, but the author only gives them a sentence or a simple line. But it shows that they're really important, but they're also the outworkings of Hebrews chapters 1 to 12. So let, let, let's recap. So chapter 12 is a climax, the crescendo, the theological heavy. Uh, so Steve labored on us <clears throat> over the last two weeks in God's discipline and the inheritance of a, a better unshakable kingdom. So, guys, the temptation is for these last two weeks just to go away downhill. In a sense, it doesn't really matter. It's like the closing scene of a film where all is well and we leave with the warm and fuzzies. Church, this is anything but that. Here's a group of believers who are grappling with the temptation to turn back. All the way through the letter, the writer urges them to persevere, to press on. If you look at the next slide, you'll see in Hebrews 10, 21 to 23, It says these incredible words. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Guys, these words sum up the thrust of the message They have every reason to persevere. They have Jesus as a great high priest. And so going on in the faith is worthwhile for his sake. And so nevertheless, a question or a couple of questions arise. Yes, believers are to persevere. That's great. But how is this to be done? What does it look like? I'm really struggling with giving God the reins. Uh, Why do I have to surrender my will? Why do I have trouble Surrendering my desires and surrendering the choices I make to the Lordship of Jesus. Church, chapter 13 is full of small resolutions about your life. Maintaining a walk with Jesus and generally really palatable down-to-earth advice. The everyday life, this is what Hebrews is all about. Or Hebrews 13 is all about. So persevering in the things we do, chapters 1 to 6. So this is kind of the first point, persevering in the things we do and persevering in the way we think. These are our two main, two main thoughts. Uh, and persevering in the things we do, Hebrews 12, last week, ended with this incredible verse, Hebrews 12, 28. It said, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Guys, in, in the original writing, there were no chapter breaks. So chapter 13 flows out of that statement. And so chapter 12 ends, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And then chapter 13 is how we worship with reverence and awe. So chapter 13 is how we worship with reverence and awe. And so all of this today is supposed to be a response of worship. Guys, Christian living is always a response to something. You worship when you're amazed and when you're overwhelmed by something. Worship is a natural response when we're amazed and overwhelmed. It's not something that we're forced to do by command, but it's something that we want to do. So worship should naturally grow out of our heart. Guys, this Understanding Your Heart seminar after service is going to be incredible because we can only truly worship when we understand what's going on in our heart. So the writer to the book has just spent 12 long rounds explaining this glorious gospel and it should fill us with a sense of wonder and awe and worship that'll actually make us want to obey god guys the commands of god are like railroad tracks railroad tracks that point you in the direction to go but they're actually powerless to move you along the track you might think mafia has heresy of course it's not powerless Railroad tracks take you where you want to go, but they're powerless to get you there. The gospel is the only engine that can move you along the tracks. If you don't understand the gospel or if you're not enraptured by the gospel, then these things I tell you today are going to be difficult for you. The way that you can gain power to do them is to better know and experience the gospel. There's a guy, J.D. Greer, he's a pastor in America, and he said this in his book, the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what's already been done. So the fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what's already been done. So as you come to know the glorious gospel that's been given, then you'll find that these things will begin to come more naturally. So if some of these rub you the wrong way, or or if you're thinking, I don't get that, or I I don't like that, or I'm not, not even sure I'm able, And perhaps we need to immerse ourselves deeper into this gospel because that's where the power to do comes from. So anyway, these verses are going to be so practical. They address questions that we face every day of the week. How do we react to people, uh, to different people in our lives, including our fellow believers, including uh, outsiders, strangers? How do we handle the gift of sexuality? What's your attitude to material wealth? These all appear random, but they're far from it. There's one strong connection that links these statements. The Hebrew believers had once been really strong in these areas of Christian conduct. But over time, then, they began to grow weak. So let's kick off this first one. Let love continue. Starts off in chapters one and two. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers there's a real word play here in, in the Greek, and we'll miss this in English. It actually says, let Philadelphia continue. So let bro- bro- brotherly love continue. And do not neglect to fellow Xenia, show love to strangers. We're talking, guys, about a love that starts among the brotherhood that spills out onto the streets. You know, as Christians, we're not just called to love other people. We're actually called to love one another well and then love each other as ourselves. This love is meant to start within our within our church, within our people group, within our fellow believers, and then spill over into the streets, into the communities. It's a love that starts in the church. It's like a cup that fills up and spills over. It's a hospitality through love for one another, and love for the outsider has always been distinctive about gospel churches. Here's a quote by uh, by an Emperor Julian. Julian was a, was a Roman emperor in the 4th century. He a persecutor of Christians. And, and, and he wrote a letter. It was a complaint letter to his friend, Arsatius. And he said these words. I, I, I've kind of changed it a little bit to make it easier to read. But it says, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of those Christians like their charity to strangers. Those godless Galileans provide not only for their own poor but for ours as well. It's incredible. They provide not only for their own power, power, but ours as well. Guys, you show show me a place where the gospel is really at work, and I'll show you a place that's characterised by the gospel, where love for others and hospitality spells out from the church body to other aspects of society. As Christians, we should be known to be the most loving people on the planet. Why? Because we recognise that we are most loved by the one who matters. Let love continue you call to a hospitality. Goes on in verse two. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. What? What a statement. What does this even mean? I want to give you two short stories in the Bible where this also happened. In Genesis eighteen, there's three complete strangers that show up to Abraham's door. Abraham is living in a tent, that's in the heat of the day, middle of the day. Very warm. They show up to Abraham's door. Abraham takes them in for dinner. He prepares. Sarah prepares everything. They they give these strangers dinner, and you know afterwards it says the two of them turn out to be angels, and one of them turns out to be Jesus, or it turns out to be God incarnate. That's a good move on Abraham's part. The second one is Luke twenty four. You've got the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. You know it's an incredible story. It's a famous story. They're downcast, and they come alongside this other person who's walking along with them. And and the guy is saying, why the long face? Why are you so glum? What's going on? And they're saying, have you not heard? Everyone in Jerusalem has heard. They've heard of Jesus, a prophet who's been killed. And anyway, Jesus goes and explains the gospel, he explains the scriptures from start to finish. But in doing that... These guys beforehand, they say, here, come have dinner with us. Come and stay with us. Come and stay with us. Come and have dinner. You know, they, Jesus comes and have dinner with them. And, and you know, they, they break bread. They have communion afterwards. And, and after that, whenever they're having communion, their eyes are open and they realize it's Jesus. And they say this incredible line afterwards. Did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us? They had been with Jesus and they knew it not. They had been with Jesus, but they welcomed him into their home. Guys, the writer isn't trying to tell us that this happens all the time. He's not trying to tell us that the person on the street or the person we see in, uh, in Starbucks or on O'Connell Street, the person we meet is Jesus, but rather he's shown us he simply never knew. William Lane, a Bible scholar, says that the author's main point here is to actually show that hospitality is actually a sacrament and that by doing it to others, you're, you're doing it to Jesus. It's like Matthew 25. Do you remember these incredible words? It says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. And Jesus is saying this. And, and the people who he's talking to, they're going to be surprised. And they're, they're going to be saying, well, well Jesus, if you had have shown up, then I would have remembered it. I would have remembered it. And Jesus goes on to say, guys, if you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Church, showing hospitality as a direct way of responsive worship toward Jesus. Do your brothers and sisters in Christ no longer seem attractive to you? Do you want less and less to do with them? The danger is right now that you're thinking of people who are no longer being hospitable to you. People who you wish were more hospitable. But guys, I'm not addressing them. I'm addressing you and me. The challenge to be hospitable is not for somebody else, it's for each of us. Perhaps your lack of hospitality is understandable considering those around you. Or perhaps the reason you feel this way is because your faith is less fervent than it used to be and you've let something get in the way. It starts on in the inside and it works its way out, it starts in the heart and works its way out. Our love for others and our hospitality is a visual model of gospel change that transforms our individual hearts from inside out first. Our hospitality is a response of worship because of something that's gone on inside the heart. So let love continue. We've got a call to hospitality. And then in verse 3, remember the chains. Verse 3 says, Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Back in chapter 10, they had to be encouraged to not stop meeting up with one another. When there were new converts, they were courageously hospitable. And even the author himself knew their practical kindness while he languished in jail. Yet now it was actually necessary for him to prompt them to remember those in prison and those who were suffering. Why? Because they're all part of the same body. If one suffered, they all suffered. If one rejoiced, they all rejoiced. And it's not just those in prison, but those who are outcasts in society, those who are on the fringes. Remember Jesus in Matthew, it goes to the edge of the town and he cleanses a leper. He touches an unclean person. The leper becomes clean. Jesus should have become unclean, but he doesn't because he's Jesus. But the leper becomes clean. Jesus provides a way to integrate them back into society. And so it is with those who have been persecuted. On a local level, we can support those by walking alongside our brothers and sisters. On a national level there's an element of support through social media communication, finances and even on an international level through our partnering with organisations that provide the support and means that our persecuted brothers and sisters need. Open Doors estimate a staggering 260 million Christians in the top 50 countries in the world watch list face higher extreme levels of persecution for their faith. Get on to www.opendoorsuk.org. You'll be blown away. On every single level, as brothers and sisters, we can partner in prayer and lift up those who have been persecuted. Guys, prayer isn't our last resort, but it's actually our first thought when we hear of persecution. If you set fire to your arm, you wouldn't just let it die out and hope the fire puts itself out. You couldn't do that at all. You'd have to put it out. It feels the pain because it's part of the body. You feel the pain because it's part of the body. So you cannot set fire to your arm. And it's that same problem again. Do your brothers and sisters in Christ no longer seem attractive to you? Do you want to do less and less with them? There there is this recurring call to love one another well. And then the next one is is marriage matters. And it's mad. It's just jumping from from love, hospitality, remember the guys in prison, marriage. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the doctor and the sexually immoral. Christians should stand out from the world because they've got a different attitude to sex. And this is because God has a different attitude to sex. It's completely countercultural to the world's standards or the lack of. To the Hebrews, there's two prevailing worldviews when it came to this. And it's such a low esteem of marriage, you have some religious cults that are obsessed with virginity, despising marriage, suggesting sex was unclean, that it's more spiritual to be celibate. Sex was defiling. Thankfully, God actually addresses that and he lays claim that the marriage bed is not defiled, but it's in fact honourable. It's honourable. God's view of marriage is not of low esteem, but it's held in high regard. On the other hand, you've got no shortage of people who who hold to the view that sex was to be had with as many people as possible and whoever was available. Sex became a sport. And it's not all that different today. Any sexual sin that fails to treat with honour and reverence the marriage relationship will ultimately come under the judgment of God. Does this mean that if you've been sexually impure in the past that you'll come under the wrath of God? No, not necessarily. If you persist in sin, whether through heterosexual or homosexual actions, then yes, you will. But in coming to Christ, you can rest assured that he has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, and that you'll never need to bear the burden and the shame of us anymore, even if the scars remain. The key is coming to Christ. Church, as Christians in a corrupt world, we, we might not be able to reverse the destructive ideas and practices that mark us as a modern society. A society wide open to per- perversion and, and promiscuity, however, we can we can attend our own marriages. We can attend our own relationships as an example of purity. That's how we honour marriage, but it's also how we worship God with thankfulness, reverence and awe. I had a conversation in the pub in Rathmines about three years ago. Um, Emma and I were there and we had some friends. In there and we are chatting about relationships and they began to ask us, so, so wait you guys are Christians, does that mean you don't have sex before marriage? We are like, yeah that's right, we're, we're going to keep ourselves pure we're going to not have sex before marriage and to them it just was mind blowing, wow wow, why why are you doing this? is, is it because you're a Christian? Is it, what, what a cost it is guys unfortunately them people haven't become Christians yet they don't know Jesus and they're not following him yet It's our prayer that one day they will. And so for us, that's one small example of of what it could look like to hold marriage in high regard. The principles here examined in one to four can be summed up in one word, commitment. And then these next couple can be summed up in another word, contentment. At one time, the Hebrews had adopted a real mature attitude toward money. Their property had been plundered, property had been taken, They, they, they just were in serious, serious trouble. And Hebrews 10.34 says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting positions. Guys, the Hebrews took it on the chin and they kept going. Yet now there's a danger here that they're beginning to slip, needing to learn over again how to be content with what they have. As Christians, both the Hebrews and ourselves ought to stand out against materialism. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said questions about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear are things that the pagans obsess over. However, if if you look at verse 5, it teaches that believers can be content because we're in a better situation. We have one who will never leave us. We have one who will never walk out on us. We have Jesus. When a believer develops an unhealthy liking for things, this is a sure sign of being seduced by the lie that money in the bank is a greater asset than the favor of God. I have a friend of mine in my last church, and four years ago, he was a 14-year-old, and he says, Matthew, I've got a problem with money. All I want to do is earn money. He noticed a bend in his heart toward material things, a bend that led him away from God. He recognized what was going on in his heart. And it's the same here, the writer had been constantly warning the readers about drifting, about wandering, about failing and falling from the faith. And now in a sharp warning, he urges not only contentment, but it also gets to the root of this, of this lust for material wealth. Guys, the root of the problem here is actually doubt about God's faithfulness as provider and protector. You know, we, we could say that the lo- lo- love of money is, is the root of all evil, and that is true, but the root of the problem here is that is that these guys are doubting God's faithfulness as provider and protector. This is what's going on in the heart. And so we're given these verses from Joshua 1.5 and Psalm 118, to drive home the faithfulness of God time and time again. And Paul does the very same in his letter. And guys, you've got David in front of Goliath. You've got Daniel in the lion's den. You have so many examples in Hebrews 11 of all these men and women of faith who didn't compromise. And I wonder, and I challenge you, what a tragedy it is if our former Christian life shames us, there's a real danger here that these Hebrews are beginning to drift. They are not what they once were. And so to put that on us, what a tragedy it would be if, if our former Christian life shamed us. Where we would say, man, I, I wish I was the way I was 10 years ago. Oh, I had a real zeal back 10, 15 years ago. I'd love to get that back. Whatever happened? Maybe, maybe I settled somewhere. Where did I settle? Persevering in the things we do. Persevering in the the way we think. And this second half of the chapter kind of calls back the, the, the days of old. Remember. He's saying remember. He's calling the church to remember your leaders. Remember back to your early days. Remember those truths your leaders taught you. Don't be swayed. Hold firm. Look at their lives. They held and they persevered. And it's saying that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throughout the letter, From 1 to 12, uh, the writer has proven that Jesus is superior over the old sacrificial system and over the old obsolete practices. We've got a hope to hold. It says in verse 10, we've got an altar to use. The cross of Christ is our altar. It gives us access to the throne of God. It's our permanent access. No more need for a priest to go before us. We have a way in. And then 11 to 13 It talks about Jesus' death outside the city. This represented, the death outside the city represented the removal of sin. In the same way, the the bodies of the animals in the Old Testament were burned outside the camp and the blood was brought inside the the tabernacle. So Jesus suffered outside the city, symbolically showing that he could separate his people from their old sinful lives and set them apart as holy and fit for service. And it wasn't enough. It goes on in 14, for here we do not have an enduring city but we are looking for the city that's to come. Do you remember last week's talk? There is a city to seek. Guys, you and I are temporary residents. Your allegiance to Jerusalem, your colour, your class, your creed, your culture are all entirely secondary and temporary. Place your hope in the eternal city. And I suppose on that, how much of your hope and sight do you set on things linked to colour, class, creed or culture? You might think, well, well none at all, Matthew. Well, What happens if I ask... How fixated are you by the political or cultural landscapes? Perhaps your mind is more in tune with the currents of culture than the changeless character of God? Are you more drawn to pray for or scoff or national leadership and response structures? How much time is given to TikTok and social media during the lockdown over and against quality time with Jesus? Maybe the loss of societal or cultural privileges is actually causing a deeper grief than maybe it should. Guys, our hearts and minds soon begin to paint a picture of what's truly valuable and worthy of our worship. I'm going to read Romans 12, 1-2. It's going to be on the screen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will is. You know, there's a real danger, church, in, in not offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. There's an old man, he's long dead, and he once said, He who marries the spirit of this world will become a widower in the next. And as we close up, I wonder, what are you giving yourselves to? What are you giving your practices to? But more than that, where is your worship coming from? Is your worship coming from from a a place where you revere, and you hold Jesus in awe and reverence? Or is your actions coming from a place of religiosity, a place because you you have to do it. It's a command. You, You don't really want to do it. He who marries a spirit of this age will find themselves a widower on the next. You know, in Revelation, there's three churches that are really interesting. You've got one on Ephesus, they persevered. Ephesus persevered, they were commanded for their faith, but they lost their first love. They gave God their service, but not themselves. You have the church in Revelation and, and Thyatira. They were commanded. They were persevered. They were praised, actually, for their spiritual growth and their outward service, but they compromised morally, unbiblical teaching, and unmoral lifestyles. And then you have Philadelphia. They persevered. They endured opposition from society. They didn't uh, conform. They resisted conformantal the trends of other churches. They resisted conformantal the trends of other cultures. They pleased Christ because of their faithfulness to them and he commends them and he encourages them to hold fast what they have so that no one may seize their crown. Guys, as I close here, I want to remind us to persevere in the things we do for the gospel and to persevere in the way we think toward the gospel. But our greatest danger, guys, is to miss the very first sentence. Keep on loving one another or let love continue. Unless our motivation is is one of love toward a brother and sister in Christ or toward the outsider, then our practices will ultimately be worthless um, if you're If you're able there when you close your eyes, I, I want to pray a prayer um, I'm, I'm going to just simply pray Romans twelve one and two in, in Eugene Peterson's rendering of uh, of this passage. And I want you to listen out for this. And, and you know what, if, if God makes one of these words or one of these lines stick, then hold on to it. So will you close your eyes with me as I pray? So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognise what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. I'm speaking to you out of deep gratitude, for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you, living them as every one of you does, in pure grace. It is important that you not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is And by what he does for us, not what we are and what we do for him. Amen. Guys, from a place of worship, we find it possible to surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And when you see the glory of who he is, you will become the glory of who he intended you to be. I'm going to close in prayer now and then we're going to sing our last song. Jesus, I thank you that you can address every struggle, that you can address every heartache, that you can a- a address every, um, er- every form of backslide, and you can address every, um, everything that we wrestle with. And so, Jesus, we surrender our hearts to you, and we ask you, we ask you to do your work in our hearts that works its way out so that we can worship you with thankfulness and reverence and awe. And that the fruit of our worship is what we do in our day-to-day lives. God, we want to ascribe you the worship <clears throat> that you are due. And as we begin to do that, Father, we know that we will begin to release the hold of the reins. And we will find it possible to surrender our will to yours. And so, Father, we, we, we pray those words that, that your son did. Yet not I what I will, but your will be done. In your name, Jesus. Amen.